the soldiers were marching him off down the corridor as he was turning around, pointing at me, shouting, I will kill you, Sally. I will kill you oh and God. all of your family. I will kill you. Uh, and I, I, I felt like, you know, I didn't really feel afraid of him. Um, I felt like powerful to stand up for the woman, you know, and she was standing behind me and... I what I saw was him being marched off with two armed guards and him pointing back at me, shouting, Mm -hmm. you know, what he was going to do to me. But what he saw, the last thing he saw was me standing strong and tall as I could be with her standing there right beside me. Hello there. Welcome back to The Bleeding Truth. This is Sally McNally and I'm here with my daughter Bridget. Yep, that's me. So today this episode's going to be talking a little bit more about female circumcision since that was the, the hot topic of a previous episode, episode six, um, with some of Sally's experiences with it firsthand. So today we're just going to really dive into the topic again with more questions, some from you guys, and then also just to elaborate on just more about the topic. Great. And uh, the reason why we started this podcast was to bring attention to women's health and uh, here's a perfect example exactly yeah and also to share some of sally's stories because she personally has had some really wild experiences both through her work experiences and also her own personal experiences that you know we can hopefully help some people with shining a light on on those stories great also with that um, before we get into your questions today Uh, Listener discretion is advised. Um, Sometimes the answers or just the stories that are shared are, you know, intended for mature audiences and considered disturbing. So listen at your own discretion. Thanks for that, Bridgie. So are you ready? Should we should we get into it? Yeah, sure. I I don't know what these (laughs) questions are. So, (laughs) yeah. So starting off, we have one from a listener uh, who, who listened to the previous podcast and she asked, I'm assuming it's a she, sorry. They asked, uh, you spoke about female circumcision and wow, but my question is with the difficulty of those deliveries, did you find many of them having more than one child? Um, Yes, I found them uh, coming back and having more and more children, just like the other women. It was um, very common to have like 10 children over there. Uh, I did see one woman who was having her 14th child. Wow. So big, huge families was the norm. Yeah. Yes. Um, so uh, the circumcised ladies. Uh, yeah, I was there for five years. So I saw a few of them coming back more than once. And did that did that, that bring more complications for them as well? Uh, well, yeah, it did because um the more injured they were each time uh, as the babies were being born. Um, but there, there wasn't really any way you could uh, re, you know, suture it or fix it back to like a normal uh, vulva and vagina because there was parts of it amputated. And that's basically what it is, is amputation of the clitoris and uh, the labia minora and labia majora in some places too so there was no real fixing it other than re-suturing it once the babies were born so the more scar tissue on the one area the more you know mm-hmm. damage that that can cause 
Yeah, but thanks. That's a really great yeah. question. But yeah, it didn't stop them from going and having more children because uh, the goal was to have the biggest family you could. Mm. Um, so they didn't want to stop having babies because of a traumatic birth experience. Um, because uh, if they stopped having children or were infertile, uh, their husband could use that as an excuse. Now, let's get that second bride or that third bride or even that fourth bride. Often I was doing a delivery um, and I, I'd be one side of the table and there was the lady pushing her baby out. And the other side was her husband. And he would, you know, say, I like you. You should be my wife. And oh, to you. This is during the delivery. To you. Yes. What? And I know. And amazingly enough, often the lady delivering the baby would look at me and say, yes, that's a great idea. You should be our wife. Whoa. So, uh, yeah, so <laughs> it was an unusual place. But that that's their traditions, <laughs> well, you know, and in your, some parts of the world. What was your response to that? I'd be like, no, thank you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, no, thank you. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, but it was like a friendly thing too that they would say you should be my my wife sister kind mm. of thing, you know. Um but it, the women didn't seem to have that natural jealousy. Yeah. Um I'm sure in their homes, you know, that probably there was that jealousies, but um out in the the world it, it didn't seem like mm -hmm. that, you know. You'd have like one woman having the baby and two other wives maybe sitting with a bunch of children wow. and it was just like one big so family. it is definitely like a cultural thing where you know some sometimes yeah. it's based on just having your needs met in different ways yeah do you think like was there just less emphasis this is a little off topic to female yeah. circumcision but was there less emphasis on romance or oh yeah there was yeah, romance, if it happened, nobody knew about mm. it because it was taboo. Um, the husband, um, his family would help him pick a bride and then there'd be an exchange of goods of some sort and uh, they didn't hang out together, you know, mm -hmm. like normal couples. Um, sometimes the, they would just meet the first night, you know, that wow. they were married yeah so yeah it was, they were all arranged marriages the romance that i witnessed was very interesting it, it was um down in this square this big square where people there was markets and you know like people selling like jewelry mm -hmm. and fruit and it was like just like this a is, kind of like a little interesting market also just want to yeah this yeah. is Saudi. <laughs> yeah um and in in that area uh somebody said watch the way they interact with each other so I I did because it was so interesting and um, if a woman was trying to attract the attention of a man uh, she would have to do it with her eyes mm -hmm. or maybe her ankle <laughs> and they, they were covered up wow. you know with a yashmak covering their face a scarf covering their head and then this big long black cloak called an abaya um, and then so you might see a little sandal with bare um, skin and then the eyes so that's all she had to work with um, but sometimes she would just like walk across the street in a certain way that her ankle would stay out of the habaya a little longer and she might have a pretty henna flower design mm. creeping up the back of her leg or something and you know that might 
be enough to drive a young man crazy, well, you know, looking at that. But um, yeah, so they weren't allowed to be together. And if they were found together, they'd be punished uh, if they right, weren't married. Right. You shared a, one very sad story of someone that yeah. you, you knew get caught with a romance yeah. with um, a Saudi, right? Yes. And they ended right. up in jail. Yes. So that's one of our former yeah. episodes, if you want to hear that. I had uh, one this is very interesting um a female doctor um she came to me she wasn't an obstetrician uh, but she came to me and she pulled me aside and I didn't know her at all she came from a different part of the hospital Mm -hmm. and she said to me you are a woman from you know from Europe Uh, you are free you can do whatever you like and I'm a Saudi woman I'm not free Mm -hmm. but I felt free at one stage and I had a love affair and now I'm going to get married and he's going to find out that I'm not a virgin. Oh, yeah. And she said, and I'm asking you to fix my body so that it's like a virgin. She wanted me to stitch her hymen back together. Wow. And I had to be honest with her I didn't know how to do that um, but I talked to one of the obstetricians and I I you know I got her in contact with one of the uh, English obstetricians who said he was going to help her Wow! because you know if they found that she wasn't a virgin that it might be a huge that, deal I mean the hymen thing is a little bit hard to to yeah pr- to prove, prove right yeah. like if you yeah yeah how do you really know it could. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know, but she she asked me, and I I I d- I wouldn't have known how to do that. Wow. That's like it's like a surgery that is not performed right mm-hmm. over here. But I'm sure over there it's something that's done quite often. Maybe not anymore. Yeah. Maybe in the new modern Saudi world, things are a lot different. I hope so. So bringing it back to to female circumcision. I've actually, since the the recording of the last podcast, I was looking it up a little bit more, and I kept seeing yeah. it being called female genital mutilation rather than circumcision. Yes. And yeah, I'm wondering your take on like which terminology to use. What's more appropriate? Uh, well, both of them are appropriate, mm-hmm. and I I actually like female genital mutilation now better mm-hmm. because it's more descriptive. Right. It's, uh, you know, you know, because there's no reason for it. There's no health benefits. Circumcision to it. almost it's sounds just... like clean and like like a procedure. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Like like when they talk about male circumcision, mm-hmm. you know, trying to convince people that that's like a normal thing, too. <laughs> it's calling um, it male genital mutilation instead might change some things, too. Oh my Didn't gosh, think of that yeah. until now. <laughs> Can you imagine? That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. If you called it male genital mutilation, it'd be a big there'd be an uprising. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, with the female genital mutilation, that describes it so much better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, the World Health Organization says that two hundred million girls and women alive today have undergone uh, fee, female genital mutilation so they use that wow. terminology as well yeah. that are alive today so you know it's not like something rare it's out there can you imagine 200 million of us women and girls wow. yeah so 
go you know you you must have experienced it quite a lot with the women in Saudi did you ever try to talk to them about the anatomy or about their thoughts on it or and I have to be honest with you my my Arabic was never that good mm. I can coach a woman through her labor you know yeah. and have like little phrases and little chatty you know funny little phrases that I might have yeah. learned but to counsel right. somebody about something like that I honestly didn't have enough and the women didn't really talk a lot mm-hmm. a lot of them were withdrawn and quiet and you know basically controlled mm-hmm. That, you know, they would look at him. Was she, you know, you know, allowed to talk? Things like laughter was, you know, frowned oh, wow. upon. Uh, I, I was often told I was laughing too much. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you laughing? And, you know, some of the girls would say, don't laugh like that out in public. You'll get in trouble. Oh, wow. You know, women weren't allowed to laugh. Um, women weren't allowed to smoke. I remember... Um, Two men were giving me a really hard time. I was in the airport smoking a cigarette. I oh, really? I'm sorry. I gave it up. I gave it up. But I was smoking a cigarette and these two men came up to me and were like giving me a hard oh, wow. time. What the, What was this woman doing smoking like this and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, there was, there was some very strange uh, traditions over there. Yeah. The more I think about I, it, I the almost more I realize. forgot. The, about the language barrier for a second was there right, just constantly yeah. translators around you or yes yeah. we were so lucky with these great girls who were translators and like nurses aides mm. as well but they were wonderful yeah. nurses they were just so were the translators so from uh, Saudi or were they also from different countries uh, some of them were from different countries. Uh, that would have been a very lowly job for a Saudi. Mm. Uh, so mostly that those kind of jobs were all imported labor. We were the imported labor. Mm. You know, the doctors, there was a few Saudi doctors, mostly imported doctors that were training mm-hmm. a lot of the Saudi doctors. Yeah, but uh, they didn't really have the Saudis doing anything like housekeeping or nursing mm-hmm. aides or anything like yeah. that. So so when it came to the women in labor that might have had the female genital mutilation, could you tell if they knew how bad it was? Was that like something that they were aware of? Or do you think it was just such a deep rooted like cultural thing that most of them weren't even aware that it wasn't that bad? I think they were led to believe that it was a good thing, mm-hmm. that it was... You know, that they were worth marrying now, that they had this, you know, procedure done, that they the men were more inclined to want a woman like that in those tribes. Yeah, uh, it wasn't every but it wasn't the Saudis, right? It was more. Um, yeah, it was more African uh, derivative yeah. thing that I yeah. saw. Yeah, but uh, it they were, you know, they, they were a better bet as a wife if they had that. And I guess it was that she wouldn't stray, that she'd be no trouble at all. She'd be quiet. She'd have babies. And and it, it was obvious that in the woman's mind, she thought that it was a good thing because she'd always say, uh, stitch it back the way it was. You've got to put it back the way it was. That was very important, I remember, to them. Uh, she couldn't go home with it, you know, any different. That's wild. 
And it was hard sometimes putting it back the way it was because sometimes it it, it was torn, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and sometimes we had to do episiotomies because the the tightness and the the restrictive nature and of what's it an episiotomy again an episiotomy is a little cut that um, can be made into the perineum into the the lower vagina to make the opening bigger during a delivery but uh, I, I had a few that I had to do an episiotomy in the lower part and in the upper part which sounds horrific mm-hmm. if there's any midwives listening it was bad girls it was it was not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Have you? Do you ever still see them? Probably a lot less frequent here in the U.S. But do you ever still see it here? Uh, you know, I, I've never actually seen one here in California. Uh, I believe I saw one up in Alaska. She she tried telling me that her she was was burnt as a child, but maybe that was a story someone tried telling her. It looked like a. a mutilation to me because I was used to seeing it mm. um, but here in California I'm so happy to say I've never seen it but um, you know if there's 200 million uh, perhaps you know it's being done here in secret and um, the World Health Organization as well uh, they have goals for this that they eliminate it by 2030 but they found one of the problems is that the health providers in certain countries are actually doing it under the guise that they can do it clean and sterile and, um, you know, in in the best possible way. So that's called medicalization of the procedure. So it's a procedure that's not needed, but they're doing it in the hospitals. That's kind of like male circumcision. It's it's a medicalization of it. Sorry, I'm bringing that back. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Exactly, yeah, but um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but it's a, a violation of human rights, uh, mm-hmm. really, and that's that's why it it sticks in my craw, of course. A lot. And the the World Health Organization is also now really focusing on equipping healthcare providers with the right, you know, education yes. as well. So yes, um, yeah, uh huh. Yeah, they're focusing on uh, the dangers of of undoing the circumcision, you know, during the wedding night when she 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 gets cut um, during different procedures. If she's needs to pass urine, if there's, you know, problems with other parts of her body and infection um, and then um, the mental health of the patient, they're bringing this to the, the doctors and saying, you know, it's not good for her mental health or her female sexual health um, that she's going to have more uh, physical problems like dysfunction and also dysfunction yes yeah um and information and education about what's normal um, and i'm so excited to think that you know the world health organization is talking about this so so mm-hmm. it's such an important subject. And these are the subjects that I brought to the desert when I went out to talk to that tribe. It was all of these same things that I wanted to talk and, and say that there's no need for this. It's mutilation. It's causing more problems. And uh, and I had brought my books, my pictures, my charts to try and educate. So I, 
it makes me kind of like happy that I was on the, the right trail, yeah. but maybe the wrong time. And the wrong you were people. there like before it was really even talked about at all. Um, that's what the, the World Health Organization is saying that since 1997, that's when oh, there wow. were more yeah. growing international efforts. But you were there 90 and 91, right? Or in, yeah. even in the 80s. Right. But I'm sure lots of women, lots of men, too, uh, have tried to, you know, do something like when I posted that podcast there on Facebook, on one of the Facebook groups that I'm on. um, It's called Labor Nurses Rock. And they do. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) um, one one girl, she came back to me and she said, I know it would be great if you had made you know a difference but I doubt if you did make a difference because it's such an it, it, it ingrained subject mm-hmm. she, but she did say that her own sister had done her dissertation in college on female genital uh, mutilation so in one way she was saying you're not making a difference but on the other hand she's saying but look at my sister so it's a collective consciousness it's whatever we can do out there we should do it right when we see or share it and talk about it and spread the awareness and that's doing something you know um you you telling me about this is something that i've barely even known was a a thing to this extent in the world and that education is helpful you know even if just a couple people learn that this happens out there and they spend yeah. you know 20 30 minutes just hearing about it and becoming more aware yeah. i think that's still an impact right that that it, it can ripple like maybe you telling your friends or me telling my story or or that sister uh, writing the dissertation all of us were ripples that that ripple might get to someone's hand who's reaching for the razor and they won't. They'll change their mind. and uh, Or they'll, they'll be arrested by good. someone else who changes their mind. <laughs> yeah. Right, yes, yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah. But talk about razors. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, I, you know... Um, I don't know, maybe to come off the subject a little mm. bit. Um, it wasn't the only uh, way I, I witnessed the women being abused over there. Uh, there was many little examples of it. But one in particular, I remember uh, we had this lady admitted she was pregnant and she might have been like 30 weeks pregnant, but she was admitted with bleeding. And uh, every day oh. we'd come and we'd see the blood on her pad and We'd keep her on bed rest and we would mm-hmm. do ultrasounds and we'd do fetal monitoring. I remember the story. And Yeah. But yeah, it was really so sad. Um, and every day she'd have that little bit of spotting and bleeding and we weren't sure what was happening. So we had to, you know, keep her on bed rest mm-hmm. in the hospital. Um, well, lo and behold, the housekeepers were making her bed this day and they found a razor blade under her mattress and it was bloody. So um, I, I figured it out what was happening. So I asked her if I could examine her. Uh, she was kind of a little bit reluctant and I said, it's OK if you don't want to. But I just I just need to make sure that the blood is not coming from somewhere, you know, 
lower than where the baby is, you know, talking about your vagina. She was like 30 weeks pregnant. So she let me examine her and in her vagina, I could see these little cuts, like little razor blade cuts inside her vagina that were bleeding just a little bit, just enough so that she could stay with us. And um, when I when I got the translator and I got talking to her and uh, uh, she told me that she didn't want to go home because uh, her husband was very abusive, that he would beat her and he would basically rape her all the time. Oh and he God. was a good bit older than her um, and she just didn't couldn't go home. She she was like afraid she just wanted to stay in the hospital and she came up with this plan herself you know to come in bleeding and you know after a few weeks she's still bleeding she realizes she's safe all this time Mm -hmm. um so of course i reported that she was continuously bleeding so you just and kept her there just kept her yes and when he came you know asking you know we were like oh yeah yeah, she needs to stay with us. She needs bed rest. And yeah, mm-hmm, sorry, she's not going home with you. But uh, yeah, she stayed until she had her baby, which was wonderful. And we became great friends. And, you know, I remember hugging her really tight when she did have to finally go home with the baby. That's so it sad. so sad. I know. But at least she got that little reprieve. Uh, I remember sometimes we would hand uh, the women... You know, when we'd be saying goodbye to them, we would shake their hands and uh, hand them boxes of contraceptive pills. Like secret? (laughs) Just to give them a... Yes, of course, it had to be secret. uh, Because the husband would want to get them pregnant as soon as possible because the more babies, the better, the stronger, the bigger the family. Um, And, you know, it, it wasn't a matter of running out of money or anything because... They had a very strange thing. They would, if they ran out of money, they could just go to the palace and knock on the back door and say, well, we need money. And it wasn't like begging because the money kind of belonged to the whole country mm-hmm. because it was came from the oil. And uh, the royal family would just give them some money to keep them going. Wow. <laughs> so they, they were, could afford to feed all these big families. Yeah. And then another lady, am I going no, on too grand. much? Another lady, um, I remember she she came in in labor, you know, and we were had her in our little triage area and I checked her and came back a little later and checked her cervix again and it hadn't changed and she wasn't contracting. Um, and I I said to her, well, it looks like you're not in labor. Mafi mm-hmm. um, Wilada. I think it's how he said it then. So not in labor. And he, he was there and he pulls out his gun, <gasps> his pistol, and he put it up against her temple. And he's pushing the gun against her temple and he's saying, you know, awful things to her. How dare she get him out of his bed? And it was the middle of the night and he needed his sleep. And how dare she get him out of bed for nothing and she would pay for this ruining his sleep and she wasn't even going to have the child and blah and it was terrible and she was like looking at me and I was looking at this gun touching her forehead and I mean this would be a huge incident oh my god security would be called and everything um 
but I just reached over and I didn't touch him, but I kind of like put my hand close to his arm to like just like give the motion like I'm going to if you don't stop it. And I I said, oh, but she's very sick. She is very sick. She has an infection and she has to stay. She probably did feel like she was in labor because she has an infection. I didn't know what you to say. I just had to knock him out of the thoughts. Wow. Yes, I made it up. She had no infection. Um, and then he looked at her and he looked at me and I said, oh, she's very ill. We must keep her and isolate her. She has an infection. And uh, he put his gun in his pocket and went and left. Um, and I remember we kept her for a week under the guise that she had some really bad infection. Wow. Was she OK after that? <laughs> yeah. Is she sh- like shaken up? Or is that like a normal she looked, thing? Yeah, she was she was shaken. She was shaking, but she was probably really used to it. They were treated really badly. They were treated as, you know, third class citizens. Um, sometimes you would see them walking um, behind their husband. You know, uh, they wouldn't walk beside them, but they'd walk behind them. Wow. And that happens with no. dad only because he walks too fast for anyone to keep up from. <laughs> yeah, he's got, he's long got really legs. long legs. Sorry, that was not not a time for a joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and another time I saw um, a woman being really abused was actually by one of the doctors. Oh, man. I came across a few doctors that were really abusive, but this one always is very memorable in my mind um, because I was uh, coming down the corridor. And at this stage, I was uh, the uh, head midwife. Um, I had, you know, gotten a promotion and I was the head Mm -hmm. midwife. Uh, So I'm coming down the corridor uh, and this little woman comes running out of one of the high risk antipartum rooms uh, and she comes running to me like really terrified and she's is this a patient she's talking yeah patient and she's talking really fast in arabic and um i i think she's saying something about he touched me he touched me and i got the translator and she was saying that one of the doctors had just come into her room and she was there on her own and she said he he said he needed to examine her and she was afraid of him and he examined her with no gloves on. Oh. That's what she she kept saying it with his fingers with no gloves on and as though the glove was important because it wasn't like really touching. If the doctor had a glove mm. on, it wasn't, you know, so at least that's how their mind would have thought. Um, and. I was like so sad for her. And suddenly this doctor appeared at the other end of the corridor and she pointed at him and she says, that's him. That's him. That's brave. Um, Yes, so brave. But she knew he had done something wrong. Mm -hmm. And she said, he checked me and there was blood. There was blood and he wiped his hand on the blanket. Um, So uh, I... Uh, I went to the room with her and she pointed out this evidence, right, that there was there it was bloody mucus on the on the um, the blanket. And he had no reason whatsoever to check her. So uh, we 
got the armed guards uh, to bring him back. And I I sat him down and I said, the patient is accusing you of this and we need to come to the bottom of it. What on earth could have happened? And he was so furious and he started shouting at me and saying, how dare I question him and all of this. And I said, she showed me the blood on the blanket. And that really shook him because that's like Mm -hmm. evidence, right? Um, And he said, he all of a sudden went into, I have diabetes and my sugar is low. So (laughs) I said, girls, quick, get the, the sugar glucometer machine and check his blood sugar and give him some orange juice but you would do it a diabetic Mm -hmm. right but he's acting like all like shaky and saying my diabetes so um at that stage the soldiers had heard the story they heard what the patient said everyone was interviewed they there's no big long drawn out court cases it's really a lot of it's on the spot kind of stuff (laughs) just Um, decide But uh, the soldiers were marching him off down the corridor as he was turning around, pointing at me, shouting, I will kill you, Sally. I will kill you and all of your family. I will kill you. Uh, And I I, I felt like, you know, I didn't really feel afraid of him. Um, I felt like powerful to stand up for the woman, you know, and she was standing behind me and. I what I saw was him being marched off with two armed guards and him pointing back at me, shouting, mm-hmm. you know, what he was going to do to me. But what he saw, the last thing he saw was me standing strong and tall as I could be with her standing Good. there right beside me, you know. So I heard he was taken off and he had to like work in the desert Um with the army, that's where he was sent, where there was no women. So he wasn't even, like, jailed. He was just re- replaced yeah, somewhere I, else. Wow. Replaced, but it wasn't, like, a good move for him. Yeah, Still but I often, you know, remember that, that what I saw, but I also saw what he he must have mm-hmm. seen, you know, and I felt really good to be on that side of it. It's actually really funny when we were... When we were just exploring the idea of starting this podcast, you told me that story <laughs> as like an yeah. example one of maybe I'll share this. Oh, yes. And you're like, yes, but I'm kind of worried he might track us down. And, you know, I don't really know what he's going <laughs> to yes. do. I was like, he's not going to find you. <laughs> I hope not. Not a chance. No. <laughs> but uh, it's just so funny. I think you're safe. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think yeah. so. Yeah. That is, that's wild. Um, But all of your stories are wild, so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess we should wrap up. Thank you guys for listening. Um, Yes. You can always ask Sally another question, and we will put those answers in the next future episodes. Again, I'm really, really appreciative to anybody who's listening to my stories. Um, And it's really wonderful for me to be able to tell them. Um, Thank you very much for being there. Absolutely. And please like and subscribe. Share this podcast with all your friends. And we'll see you in the next one. Right. Thanks Thanks a a million. million. Good night now.